Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander. This week, we're talking to Kim Voss Deville, whose new book is Walking Ratty, The Baby Dolls of New Orleans. Welcome back, Kim. Thank nice you. Nice to see you. It's a delight to be here to talk to you about it. Now, you're an academic. It's okay if I don't use your honorific, and can I just call you Kim? Kim is fine. <laughs> okay. This isn't your first book. <clears throat> you had a very successful book in um, 2015, The Baby Dolls, Breaking the Race and Gender Barriers of Mardi Gras. In fact, it was the one book, New Orleans, that everybody read. Yes. Um, the book was published in 2013 and was a cultural history of this masking tradition. And it was uh, the basis for an exhibit of material culture, costumes, memorabilia, photographs, historic photographs at the Louisiana Museum's Presbyter. And over time, as the book um, became, um, you know, more of a talking piece for people and in entering into their lives, it brought back many memories from different New Orleanians about their relationships to the baby doll, dolls either seeing them or having family members. And more and more people began to tell me, well, you know, my aunt or my great-grandmother, you know, was a baby doll. And so these um, more nuanced stories about who these women were and the lives that they led um, just led me to want to continue telling this story, not only the historical piece, now that we had so many new narratives to add to, rounding out the picture of the first group of women who masked and the varieties of, of men and women who did this, but also the scholarship that we could look at. I was motivated to tell this story because there was no scholarship about black women's participation in Mardi Gras. We heard a lot about other kinds of masking traditions, especially those identity groups that basically have more privilege. Perhaps they are of a higher socioeconomic class, or their men, we tend to hear about those stories, but we don't tend to hear about the stories of people who are um, not, uh, not necessarily uh, in the mainstream of society. And this was an opportunity to tell that story. Well, and since you wrote that book, <clears throat> there's been such a um, change in awareness of the baby dolls, the walking groups, um, and I was just quite amazed at the academic background that you present here. You, you, you some of your uh, authors put things into you know a much broader perspective than than we're very interested in everything New Orleanians because we live here, but it really it, it has such universal application that maybe we just didn't realize till you gathered this scholarship. Well, for the benefit of people that might not remember the book, <laughs> the first book, um, The Baby Doll started, it was about 100 years ago. Yeah, it's a little over 100 years ago. And of course, because it was a folk, folk culture, we never really know exactly how it started. There are multiple stories of origin, and people talk passionately about, you know, which of those origins uh, which is the true one. 
But I think that people were close in community with one another. And the way costuming happened was that people looked at what was happening in popular culture. What were the new songs uh, that were, were popular? What were the vaudeville acts that were popular? What was happening, you know, in the movies? And during the early 19th century, what was popular was little was women dressing up as little girls and men singing songs about their their uh, sweethearts as baby dolls. So this is the early 1900s, starting around the, 1912. Yes, the very early uh, part of the the first the first decade of the century, pretty much. And so a group of these women uh, were around another masking group that was beginning, um, the Zulus. Uh, Social Aid and Pleasure Club was starting at that time. And because, you know, New Orleans is such also such a walking city, you know, especially then you could walk to so many places. And it was also so, and Mardi Gras is also so neighborhood-based. And so these were people who began developing these characters and coming out year after year to entertain their community because they couldn't go to Canal Street and comfortably uh, look at a parade. So they paraded in their neighborhoods and they made Mardi Gras spaces for themselves, most famously, of course, on North Claiborne Avenue. Uh, was a, a real big staging ground for black Mardi Gras traditions, and you could see all the black Mardi Gras traditions. Again, for people that aren't lucky enough to live here, um, Claiborne Avenue was changed when we built an expressway, and it really had a huge effect on the way the local Mardi Gras was celebrated. No longer could people gather at this certain place that had been the beginning of so many traditions. It had been a tree-lined street. It had been um, lots of family homes. Um, it, big neutral grounds allowed people to have to stage a picnic area. And they had continued to do that until the interstate came through that neighborhood and really changed the composition of the neighborhood. The, um, a lot of businesses left the neighborhood. A lot of um, people also moved out of the area, and it, and it changed. But people continue to this day to celebrate Mardi Gras under that bridge. And for brass bands, it's a particular advantage, actually, because the sound is, is the ever more amplified. And against inclement weather, it's also good because you, you sort of have those areas that you can stand and not get wet and still be part of the party. I was amazed. Um, this is a little bit off the topic of the baby dolls, but when they were trying to decide where to build the expressway, the, the powers that be actually wanted to cut up the French Quarter and have it go right along the river. And, I mean, there's never a good place to put a road, but... No, no. It's sad, whatever. There, and there were two, um, you know, there were two proposals at the same time, the one that would put it, in t it through the quarter and the other that would put it through Claiborne Avenue, and there was a successful resistance campaign to the one in the quarter. And sometimes people think that, well, you know, then it went, it just went to the Claiborne Avenue area. But those two proposals were brought up at the same time. And the one that was not successful in mounting a protest were the African-American people in that community, partly because there were so many other fronts that they were fighting discrimination. 
This is the 60s. Yes. So there were other different issues at salience as Uh, epidemics. Well, and and also time and attention and energy. Now, one of the theories theories, um, of what might have contributed to the beginnings of the um, baby dolls is that the African-American prostitutes were um, significant in the development of the baby dolls. Right, because they were a group that already stepped outside of traditional norms. And so to be a woman in you know the early 20th century and before to go out on the street masked in a costume uh, and not sit properly on a balcony or away from where crowds could get you uh, was to take a risk, and you had to be hugely courageous. And it was not unusual at that time for women to carry whips uh, if they were baby dolls or not. You could see that as part of their costume. What, what else was in their costume? Um, well, for the, for the early ba- masks, face, different kinds of masks on the face, um, little satin half masks, uh, full face masks, um, or if they didn't have masks on, lots of fun. They had lots of fun with makeup. And so the juxtaposition of makeup for grown-ups with little girl baby doll outfits on called attention to the satirizing of, you know, this idea of femininity and what femininity uh, is supposed to be. So they, ha- they wore garters around their legs. That was the first. Um, that was the first important accessory to have a, a rather short skirt and a garter that could be seen, where you could tuck the money in that you collected through that day or that you made yourself, and you threw at the men who might be following you. That's just so, wonderful. So it was a real turn, money at tur- them, turning things on their head. Now. Um, <clears throat> You talk about the um, the songs, and there's a remarkable. You some of your people have written, and you've written. There seemed to be a, a remarkable number of songs that had the expression of baby doll or baby or you're my baby or pretty baby. Yes, it was a it was a whole genre of songs about um, women as as little girls or as infants and. Um, it was also a time when um, people were creating slang, new slang for the error. And you would refer to your lover as your baby, as your, or your sugar daddy as your daddy, or your, or your mama. Uh, and so those familiar, familial terms went into the language of lovers. And we had the pretty baby movie and the Belloc pictures, and um, that was... Yes. controversial Brooke Shield. Yes, and the idea of the the grown-up woman as a little girl as a as a sex symbol was this, you know, definitely uh titillating uh at that time. And so the baby the women who masked as baby dolls, whether they were working in the sex industry or they were women who were married and went out with their husbands dressed up in these little short costumes so that they could so that they could enact the popular culture of the time, because that's really what they were doing. They were enacting on the street the popular culture of the time, just like um, 
you know, we would do today with some of our our incredible stars uh, who, you know, like Rihanna or Beyonce, you know, we would have the Rihanna dolls or the Beyonce dolls today. So whatever we're referring to in popular culture finds its way into Mardi Gras. Well, on that subject, well, this is radio, so we can't see this marvelous artwork on your cover, and, and you have a lot of um, uh, photographs and pictures of artwork. You have the artists that responded to the to the book. But what is what's walking ratty? Walking ratty is a a a way of strutting down the street, uh, switching and being bold in your uh, physical movements and letting people know that here comes this extremely attractive, sexy, strong woman who's then going to uh, dance uh, dance you and entertain you and pull you into, you know, the dance of, of fun and life and frivolity in the moment of Mardi Gras. Now, so, some, somewhere, I don't remember if it's you or one of the other authors, um, mentions twerking and um, bounce maybe. Yes, because, because African-American social dance has, a, has its history in African dance and the incredible muscular muscularity and physicality of African dance is something that is still, that has been retained in African-American social dance for centuries. And especially the gyration of the hips has always been something that's been very important in African dance and continues to be very important uh, in, in black social dance, even in Jamaica, where we see dance hall. So um, the the idea of shaking your hips, doing the shimmy and, you know, shake dancing. And um, the I think the difference that we see today in, in social dance, as far as the baby dolls of old, their derrieres, they like to shake, to shake on down and shake down to the ground. And with twerking and bounce, the derriere is positioned in a very different place. Um, it's definitely positioned. It's, it's definitely <laughs> positioned. But, you know, in the book, we discuss the devaluation of black women's bodies through the slave trade and through the institution of slavery, their inability to control their own bodies, that they were always constituted as sexual and wanting and not minding being sexually molested. And there's never been any consequences for that. And so even Lakeisha Simmons, who writes in Crescent City Girls and writes in the book, that moving around the city for black women was very dangerous. And how do you move around the city and still be a young person and even an older person who still wants to have pleasure and have leisure time? when you have to worry about the geography of space and whether or not you're safe. So um, women's, the idea that, you know, women can own their own bodies is probably the most important aspect of this tradition of baby dolls and still survives to this day about owning your own body, no matter what size you are, what age you are as a woman and not having to conform to beauty standards that were never meant to include you in the first place. Uh, speaking of ages, one of my favorite baby dolls was T. Eva Perry. And she was, she was out there 
until she just passed recently. Yes, you know, coming to the studio today, of course, I uh, drove past to Eva's place, and, you know, one can't help but think about, you know, how much, how big of a of a vacancy there is in our cultural landscape because of her. And she was an entrepreneur. She used, in true baby doll fashion, the things that were at her disposal to become a success. Um, she took her family's recipes and turned it into a, a, a successful business. She was a baker, an entrepreneur, a cook. And the baby dolls took the clothes that they had at hand, whatever they had. Some of them, you know, just went home and rolled up a short skirt and put on a little mask if they could afford it. Others scrimped all the money they had so that they could buy a costume and put those together and came out and made a statement uh, about themselves using the things that they have access to. Now, Antoinette uh, Cado plays a big part in the current interest in baby dolls. Yes, and there are two chapters in the book dedicated to Antoinette uh, Cato. Antoinette was um, the the manager of the mother-in-law lounge named in honor of her husband, um, the R&B musician Ernie Cato, and um, quite a character. (laughs) Both of them. (laughs) Yes, yes. Lots of personality. And when Ernie passed, Antoinette wanted to find ways to keep the culture going. And so she remembered the baby dolls, and she was really one of the first people to cause this resurgence and renaissance uh, of the the baby dolls, um, bringing them back. And they came out prior to Katrina. And, you know, then with the, the circumstance of Katrina happening, people really felt that the traditions in New Orleans special to... New Orleans would die, and there became more interest. Um, but Antoinette held a workshop at her bar about how to become a proper baby doll. Uh, she had Miriam Baptiste Reed, whose family was one of the early baby doll masking families, come and teach them how to make the dresses. They used to even make, well, she used newspaper cutouts to make her dresses, but they also had papers uh, costumes made out of paper mache. Well, there is a little controversy, though, um, with Antoinette Cato invited Caucasian Americans. Yes. And some people feel that's cultural appropriation and Caucasian Americans should not dress out and mark march as baby doll. You know, that continues to be um, uh, an ongoing site of controversy. And there are, there are a group of women who mask with Monk Boudreaux, the Golden Eagle baby dolls. And they were invited in by Monk Boudreaux to mask with him. And then they went and talked to Antoinette Cato, and she gave them her dress to use as a model. And they have been masking ever since. And um, and I think the perspective for that particular group is that, well, they can't be appropriating if they were invited in. But other people look at it and say there were other ways that you could participate. So um, we have um, fewer white women who are masking today as they had with Antoinette because Antoinette 
was also running a business and she had a very um, large white following. And I think that the last thing that she wanted to do was going to be to alienate that particular following. And, uh, and she also always talked about Ernie's song that talked about integration and the importance of integration. And so for, you know, for people uh, at a certain age who had a certain life experience and, you know, were positioned in society in a, in a, in a certain way, their openness to opening the culture um, led them to, to do that. But there are other people in the culture, for example, the Mardi Gras Indians, who um, feel perhaps that this is, a, this is something that's passed down from, in families. It's rooted in culture. Um, it's an, it's an, an authentic New Orleans black expression of creativity and if if white people become involved in it, um, it could it could change and be something other than what it has been. And one of the critiques is, you know, when Hollywood comes in and they can learn um, from some of the black masking Indians how to make their suits, they go back and they don't hand make them. You know, they make them quite quickly in Hollywood. And therefore, you have all of these people who are engaged in a in an authentic at high costs in terms of time and commitment to them, uh, just being appropriated, you know, by other people for, you know, for an entertainment industry. So it's, it's extremely complicated, um, the participation of other, of other groups. And we continue to look and see how people are working that out within their own groups. Well, and it'll be interesting. <clears throat> One of my former colleagues wrote a book, um, the upshot of it is that New Orleans has always been so much of a mixed race uh, city more than a lot of other cities. And her thesis is that with the um, change in our population with so many Hispanics of mixed racial background, the thrust of her idea is we're actually becoming a triracial uh, society. So it'll be interesting to see what happens if if that becomes the dominant paradigm. If people start saying, you know, with all these DNA tests and mm -hmm. everything, if people mm -hmm. say, well, maybe I'm mixed racially. So maybe I know, that but gives but I think that we're not so much talking about you know the about genetics. We're talking about access to resources. Because this is really the kind of issue. Who is, you know, like if somebody wants to come down and talk to, you know, from wherever and talk to baby dolls, are they going to be talking to people from whom the, you know, baby dolls didn't arise because they could have access to mainstream Mardi Gras. They, they arose because there were these discrimination, the conditions of discrimination, which continue to, which continue to have an impact to, to today. So it's not so much about who can be involved, but what are the socio-political and economic ramifications of your getting that attention Especially versus somebody economic, else? Economic and economic and, and exposure, um, you know, to to the wider world about what this tradition is. These are the real issues at at stake. Well, and you point out that the marching crews lately, um, there's uh, even at the traditional parades are. Um, including groups of women whose um, names, I guess we could say on the radio, but they're double entendres names, um, the Pussyfooters, the Camel Toe Steppers, 
um, the muffaladas. I mean, these are women who are similar to the baby dolls in that they're walking ratty. I mean, they're sexy yes. and their costumes are yes. very suggestive. And Yes, and, and they do harken back to black women's um, example of putting bodies out that are not, you know, the stereotypical body type uh, for Hollywood. Um, but they ca- but they don't carry the same kind of a- burden of ambiguity about how people feel about the group that the baby dolls do. And so this is this is another aspect of what it means to, you know, invite um, to open the ranks about who can come in and be part of these traditions. Because, you know, the baby dolls continue to be burdened with this idea of, well, it was a risque, it's a risque activity. Mardi Gras allows for you to be risque. And then you have these risque people who um, started it. Uh, and so it's, it's, it still carries that kind of ambivalence and stigma in ways that these new groups don't. Well, we it's such a fascinating topic and we haven't really done justice to the book itself you have a whole section of um from the exhibit of how artists responded and you have their um descriptions plus the pictures of their artwork which are just fabulous um you have very learned (laughs) but written for laymen you know we can all understand and appreciate um these people that have put the baby dolls into a perspective that sometimes in New Orleans we get so provincial, we're so in love with ourselves um, that I found it very rewarding to to put this into a broader scope, talking about Trinidad and different customs, different places. They're definitely still relevant. Now, there is a picture of you dressed out as a baby doll, but you're not a baby doll. I am not a baby doll. And I was with Sarah Clunas and Danielle Gare, who both write for the book, and we were preparing for that exhibit uh, in which the pictures are in the, are in the book and the artist statements are in the book. And we just kind of followed around to see what it was like to, a day in the life of a baby doll on Mardi Gras Day. Well, you looked very beautiful as a baby doll. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the book is very beautiful also. As I said, there's radio. You can't see the cover. You can't see the pictures. Um, you've been listening to Writers Forum, and we want to thank our guest this week, Kim Voss DeVille. Um, the whose new book is Walking Ratty, The Baby Dolls of New Orleans. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH. <laughs>